1: Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com/slash/CyberWire. An update on social engineering on Twitter. A quick look at the phishing kit criminal market. The European Union sanctions individuals and organizations in Russia, China, and North Korea for involvement in notorious hacking campaigns. North Korea's North Star campaign is back and dangling bogus job offers in front of its marks. Decepticons snoop into European law firms. Zuli Ramzan from RSA on digital contact tracing. Our guest is Tom Kellerman from VMware Carbon Black on top financial CISOs analyzing the 2020 attack landscape. And both NSA and NIST have some advice on shoring up your security. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, July 31st, 2020. According to Twitter, the social engineering that enabled attackers to compromise high-profile accounts to run a Bitcoin scam was accomplished through a phone spear phishing attack. It's unclear exactly what that means, but Graham clearly speculates that it involved impersonating a Twitter help desk, possibly with a combination of SMS phishing, with a request to call a scam help site. By Twitter's account, the social engineering that gave the hackers access to Twitter's internal support tools proceeded in at least two phases. Twitter says that not all of the employees that were initially targeted had permissions to use account management tools. But the credentials the social engineers obtained from those personnel enabled the attackers to sift through parts of Twitter's internal systems to collect information about the company's processes. Then they used what they learned to find and target other employees who had the access the attackers were after. Once they'd obtained credentials belonging to users with more extensive privileges, the attackers were able to use them to access account support tools. And from that point, they were able to run their lowbrow altcoin advance fee scam, forsaking the deceptive ingenuity they'd employed in all those voice spear phishing attacks. Twitter says it's increasing security. As Ars Technica points out, Twitter has been criticized for the large number of people who had access to its account support tools and for inadequate controls in place to prevent the sort of abuse that ultimately compromised them. Twitter has represented its security improvements as assigning a higher priority to security and in pushing forward pre-existing security work streams and improvements to our tools. With regret, the company says customers may expect less responsive service while it sorts out its procedures. ZeroFox, the Baltimore-based firm known for social media security and also for having the best-known and most active mascot in the security industry, has published a guide to the current state of phishing kits. Phishing kits involve the establishment of convincing malicious sites to which phishing victims can be directed and subsequently fleeced. They also include letters that can be used in phishing expeditions, and they often come with a dashboard that the crooks can use to control their scams. The researchers set the phishing kit industry, for industry it is, in the context of the criminal market. They divide the participants in the market into two classes— Developers and operators. The developers are the ones who make, market, and support the phishing kits. The operators are the developers' criminal customers. The most popular sectors for which phishing kits are developed include software as a service companies, webmail providers, financial institutions, and payment handling firms. The European Union has issued its first sanctions against hackers singling out individuals and institutions in Russia, China, and North Korea. The news from Brussels is that six individuals and three groups in total were sanctioned. The individuals under sanction are two Chinese nationals, both for their involvement in Stone Panda's Operation Cloudhopper Industrial Espionage Action, and four Russian nationals, all GRU operators fingered for intruding into the Wi-Fi network of the Hague-based Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. The organizations named in dispatches are the Tianjin Weying Hightai Science and Technology Development Company Limited, named for its role in providing financial, technical, or material support for Operation Cloudhopper and for facilitating its activities. Chosung Expo, a North Korean outfit that supported the Lazarus Group and specifically in its conduct of the WannaCry attacks. And finally, the Main Center for Special Technologies of the Main Directorate of the General Staff of the Armed Forces of the Russian Federation. That is, a major GRU unit that's specifically cited for its role in the destructive NotPetya pseudo ransomware campaign as well as for such voodoo bear or sandworms operations as the attacks against the Ukrainian power grid. Josep Borrell, the EU's foreign policy head, explained to the AP that the effect of the sanctions would be, quote, a travel ban, an asset freeze to natural persons, and an asset freeze to entities or bodies. It is also prohibited to directly or indirectly make funds available to listed individuals and entities or bodies. End quote. The three campaigns the EU cites, Cloudhopper, WannaCry, and NotPetya, are all familiar and unusually destructive espionage efforts. It's also interesting to see the attempt against the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, listed among the offenses charged to the four named GRU operators. These men were apprehended in the Netherlands in April 2018 and shortly thereafter expelled from the country. It's believed that their hacking attempt was part of an effort to disrupt the OCPW's investigation of a GRU attempt to assassinate a Russian defector in Salisbury, England, using Novichok nerve agent. McAfee researchers have described Operation North Star, a North Korean cyber espionage campaign that prospects workers in the defense and aerospace sectors with bogus job offers. Pyongyang has used this approach intermittently since 2018, LinkedIn has again been used to communicate the offers, which are subsequently baited with malicious code. European law firms are being targeted by a hacker-for-hire mercenary group, ZDNet reports. The group, which is known by the playground hacker name Decepticons, has been described by Kaspersky researchers. The security company's APT Trends Threat Report for 2020's second quarter describes the group as clever as opposed to technically advanced. The Decepticons have been active for a decade and are most interested in collecting financial information, client information, and details of negotiations. Kaspersky doesn't associate the group with any particular organization or threat actor, that is, no one beyond the Decepticons themselves, who seem to be an unusually intrusive business intelligence service and quite indifferent to custom law and regulation. And finally, there's some useful advice from the U.S. government on dealing with current vulnerabilities. The boot-hole vulnerability Eclipsium described this week, that's CVE 2020-10713, which earned a CVSS rating of 8.2, not the highest, but pretty high, affects a great many devices. General consensus in the industry press holds that billions, not a Saganist billions and billions, but a lot of Windows and Linux devices are affected. It's going to be, many observers have said, a tough bug to patch. But NSA has issued mitigation advice for the boot hole vulnerability. Fort Meade suggests two useful approaches. Users can update an endpoint's vulnerable boot components and revoke the trust of existing boot components. This will be suitable for most individual users and small enterprises, in NSA's opinion. Alternatively, for organizations that require higher levels of security, they can implement secure boot trust infrastructure and customize their endpoints to use it. And CISA and NSA have warned that there's currently a heightened risk of foreign espionage services attacking U.S. critical infrastructure. Most of that infrastructure in the United States is in private hands. NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, Reminds those who operate infrastructure that the Institute has guidelines available for secure engineering that can reduce the risk of such attacks. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. My guest today is Tom Kellerman. He's head of cybersecurity strategy at VMware. VMware. He joins us with results from their recent report on top financial CISOs analyzing the 2020 attack landscape.
0: Yeah, this report is seminal. Um, we surveyed and interviewed over a thousand CIOs and CISOs from around the globe. Uh, they're all experiencing an increase of attacks. They're all experiencing increased attack sophistication. Uh, but more notably, uh, if you look at it from the lens of like true ground truth, um, the prime causes of breaches were you know OS vulnerabilities application attacks, and island hopping. And application attacks and island hopping are things we need to focus on because the nature in which APIs are being built out left and right to facilitate digital transformation and the provision of financial services or the provision of just services to your constituencies, hackers are taking advantage of that. And they're targeting those very APIs to essentially island hop into entities and then use those entities, digital transformation efforts to attack their constituencies. The most prolific types of cyber attacks were custom malware attacks and cloud-based attacks, specifically cloud-based attacks using Google Drive. And process hollowing has become the new M.O. of living off the land or lateral movement within organizations. We've been focusing on PowerShell for too long. Uh, I wish Microsoft would just fix the problem, Uh, but then they also have the other problem of WMI. Uh, But frankly, process hollowing has been widely embraced by the elite hacker crews of the world as the mechanism by which to move from east to west or west to east within the infrastructure, and then perform campaigns of not only island hopping, um, but essentially commandeering the entire infrastructure as a whole.
1: Wow. Are are there any common elements for the the, the organizations that are doing a good job, that are effectively defending themselves? Do they have any common threads there?
0: Yes, uh, they do. They've integrated their security controls. They understand that it's an all hands on deck approach and that they have to break down the silos between IT and security. Um, they got to operationalize security through IT and to do so they need to dramatically increase visibility. These same organizations are regularly conducting threat hunting exercises uh, and using those a- as essentially a game day film for the inevitable allocation of resources and personnel. Um, these people believe in securing applications, securing workloads, uh, and they also believe in the premise of just in time administration, is in so much that administrative privileges uh, shouldn't remain uh, indefinitely for anyone within an organization as just an easy stepping stone.
1: Were there any surprises that came out of the survey that you did? Anything you didn't expect?
0: Well, I didn't expect um, that process hollowing would increase by three hundred percent, and destructive attacks would be on such a, such a rise. Uh, I did expect the island hopping phenomenon. I did expect the application attacks. Uh, The OS vulnerabilities, uh, the exploitation of OS, yes, we've always talked about that in the past, but I I think we're dealing with a resurgence. Um, There's a newfound renaissance. I think in large part that's attributed to the economy of scale of the dark web. As noted in the World Economic Forum report that was released a few weeks ago, they said that the dark web economy of scale will be the third largest economy in the world by 21 which is scary to me, but also more importantly, they said that the second greatest risks to corporations globally will be cyber, which we've all been waiting for. Um, Number one being obviously pandemics, which we're all dealing with. But I do think that the COVID crisis and the pandemic of COVID is exacerbating our attack surface. Our adversaries are taking advantage of the situation. Uh, Frankly, the US as a hegemony is very weak right now. And you've got nation states, non-state actors, and criminal groups all pursuing a campaign of attrition against us. This is the problem with our industry, and I'm going to call a spade a spade here. Yeah. We've been focused far too long on the bullets, the munitions that are being launched against us uh, versus the interdependencies of the dark web versus how did they target us in the first place um, and the behaviors that coincide to be able to predict Uh, when they're coming, how they're coming, and whether they're alone. And I say this because the Lockheed Martin kill chain is outdated. It is too linear. It doesn't take into account what I would call the cognitions of an adversary. Remember, a cognition uh, is a precursor for behaviors. We cannot just focus on TTPs. I give MITRE 1,000 pounds of credit. And I appreciate everything that they've done with ATT&CK. But now we must begin to think, of how do we predict new TTPs? How do we predict new combinations of TTPs? And how do we understand and appreciate that it's not a kill chain. They're not coming in and leaving. They are staying in. And then they're going to move laterally, and they're going to leverage island hopping. And so how do we understand those behavioral anomalies within us? Because we have to invert the security paradigm. Uh, decreasing dwell time is, I guess, the ROI for success in today's day and age. But I'm hoping in the end, we can suppress adversaries unbeknownst to adversaries when they're inside of us and run them in circles.
1: That's Tom Kellerman from VMware. If you want to hear an extended version of this interview, head on over to the CyberWire.com. You can find it there in the CyberWire Pro section. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Dr. Zulfikar Ramzan. He is the Chief Technology Officer at RSA. Uh, Zuli, it's always great to have you back. I wanted to get your take on digital contact tracing. As we find ourselves uh, continuing to go through this situation with uh, COVID-19. This is top of mind for a lot of people. What are your thoughts?
2: So, you know, first of all, I think, Dave, it's important to realize that contact tracing is an extremely well-known idea in epidemiology. It's been around forever, basically. It involves being able to identify individuals who've been exposed or been in contact with somebody who's been uh, deemed to be infectious with the virus. And really, it's about making those people aware of the fact that they've been exposed and and recommending appropriate measures like getting tested or quarantining and, and, and so on and so forth. Now, um, I think that you know, given, given the COVID-19 situation, how long people can be asymptomatic for, for a while, and, and, and the fact that they can be asymptomatic and infectious at the same time, it leads people to believe that, hey, epidemiologists should really be implementing contact tracing mechanisms. Now, to me, I think traditional contact tracing is very manual, so you have to have patient interviews, you've got to maybe manually figure out where they've been and who they've been in contact with, and so on and so forth. And really, making this process digital it's about trying to reduce the error rate of the manual process, number one. And number two, it's about being able to, to cast a wider net so you can more effectively capture a wide variety of people and let them all know that they've been potentially impacted. As you
1: look at the, the efforts that are going on globally with this, uh, where do you think folks are getting it right and, and where do you think they're coming up short?
2: first of all, I think that there's an element where you know there's a lot of basic privacy and, and fairness and discrimination questions that come up right you have to think about questions around uh, you know what data is collected how is that data being used you know what checks and balances exist to avoid misuse and abuse of that data is there a way to provide some level of governance on top of the systems that are being used to perform digital contract tracing uh, what I do worry about at the fundamental level is, is are we creating a massive surveillance system that could potentially be used for other purposes. So they will build a system thinking, hey, we need it for COVID-19. And maybe people are willing to accept uh, the privacy risk associated with those systems. But a year from now or two years from now, as COVID becomes less of an issue, these systems will still be around. And there's a question of whether or not the data being collected by these systems could now have a deeper and, and more, uh, more maybe uh, most nefarious purposes for that matter.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting aspect, isn't it, that uh, I think a lot of people would think, yes, you know, maybe I'm willing to give up some of my privacy in the short term for the greater good to try to get us through this. But that doesn't mean that I want to turn
2: that information over forever. Correct. Yeah, maybe, you know, you're willing to provide information about your COVID status. But if that same data that was used to collect information about your COVID status can glean other insights about your health, like maybe it tells about other aspects of, of your health history that you may not want to have divulged. All of a sudden, you, you may not have that choice, right? All of a sudden, you may be caught in this difficult situation where the same data being used to convey COVID status could be used to convey other aspects of, of your health. Yeah, it seems to me
1: too that you know a component of this beyond the, the technology side, that there's really I guess almost a PR side of this. So being able to uh, the the folks who are trying to do this to effectively communicate the message that, you know, this is what we're trying to do. These are the privacy uh, things that we put in place. And and here's why we need your participation.
2: Right. And I think that's an important element of it. I think with, with every technology, we have to have a corresponding way of communicating about that technology. For every one person who understands the technical details, you need 10 who can explain it in maybe layman's terms or explain it to policymakers. And talk about the implications. If you don't have that in place, that that effective communication channel where you can really educate the broader population as well as educate policymakers, you know we're going to be in for a very very tough ride. And, and you know I think we're already seeing this now, where you know these these apps that are talking about doing let's say Bluetooth based contact tracing, they're not perfect, right? They have security issues occasionally. Uh, there, there are some vulnerabilities associated with Bluetooth, although not very common these days, but still uh, do come every, every now and then. Uh, people need to understand the risks. And then more importantly, it's also important to realize that you know two things with contact tracing. One is if you want this type of Bluetooth-based contact tracing to be effective, it's got to be prevalent. If you don't have enough people doing contact tracing, its effectiveness goes down considerably. Mm. And the second element to keep in mind is that to me, the digital part of contact tracing is just a means to an end, right? It's, it's a way of identifying potential exposures. But the real Heart of contact tracing, when you talk to epidemiologists, it's, it's really important to follow up with that exposure information to ensure that the people who have been tracked and who've been identified as potentially being exposed are given the right set of recommendations. They're being told, hey, you, you shouldn't be doing these things now that you've been exposed, or you should be getting tested. So there's a whole aspect of follow-up that goes beyond that technology piece alone. And I think unless you get all these pieces right to it to an appropriate degree, we're not gonna see the effects of digital contact tracing take place. Um, and, and effectively enough in the way that we want it to.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Zufakar Ramzan, thanks for joining us.
2: Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Dave.
1: And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com.